Hey, and thanks for taking the time to listen with us here at Gospel Way as we seek to find rest in Christ. Please know that this is supplemental and does not replace your local church or the pastor that God has given to shepherd your soul. But it is our prayer that God will use these resources to bless you and point you to Jesus. Number nine, we'll begin in this new chapter. And real quickly, I want you to look at verse number five. At the end of verse number five, the author makes a statement. He says, of which we cannot now speak particularly. That being said, I'm going to preface everything that we're going to look at tonight through that verse. There's a lot of stuff here that we could delve into, but since the author of Hebrews doesn't, we won't either. Um, we'll mention some things. We'll go over some things really quickly. But all in all, what we're going to look at tonight is the point of the text, which is what we ought to be looking at every time we come together and every time we open the scripture is the point of the text. But if you have your Bibles, we're going to start in verse number one, and we're going to read all the way down through verse number 14. So I'd invite you to look with me as we read. Then verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. So he's just got done talking about what we looked at last week in chapter number 8. About how we have a better, more powerful covenant And now he's going to look at the tabernacle itself and some of the applications of the tabernacle. Verse number two. For there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil of the the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant. And over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak to particularly. So we could delve into all that, but the author says we're not going to. Verse number six. Now when these things were thus ordained, so whenever God put them together, the priest went always into the first tabernacle accomplishing the service of God. But into the second went the high priest alone, once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the heirs of the people. The Holy Ghost this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing, which was a figure for the, for, for the time then present, in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not be made, that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and cardinal ordinances imposing on them until the time of reformation. But Christ being come an high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkled 
sprinkling the unclean, sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through eternal through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your consciences from dead works to serve the living God. As I was putting things together for this, I found out a really interesting little piece of information that I did not know before. Um, I'm all about those useless little pieces of information that really have no purpose in everyday life other than when you're in conversation, you can say, hey, did you know such and such? I'm full of that useless information is what my wife tells me. So here's a piece of useless information for you. In 1811, the U.S. government set up within its treasury the Conscience Fund. And it does exactly what it sounds like it does. This fund was set up, actually set up by James Madison, so that anyone who defrauded the government could send money to put into what they called the Conscience Fund. They actually the first I guess deposit, so to speak, into this conscience fund was $5. There was a man who felt like that he had defrauded the government and his conscience was weighing on him. So he sent $5 to this conscience fund and thus the fund was set up. It's actually still in effect today. As I was looking through some of the history of it, there was a guy who reused a five cent stamp because he reused a five cent stamp he sent in 11 cents to this conscience fund to not only make up for the five cents, but to kind of do a double portion, so to speak, for this five cents. His conscience was weighing on him over using a stamp twice. If you were to look today, you're not going to be able to find out how much is there because I tried. But what I did find out is in 1987, this account had a total income of $3.5 million. So this is an account that is only there to help soothe your conscience when you defraud the government. That's the only reason it's there. And as of 1987, there was $3.5 million in this fund. So what does this tell us? We have a conscience problem. Some of us, some of us need a conscience problem. Some of us don't have enough of a conscience problem. But All in all, and what this text actually addresses is that the new covenant fixes a problem that the old covenant could not fix. And that problem is a guilty conscience. And we'll get to that. We actually see it there in verse number 11, and we'll see it again in verse number 14. But we need to understand how this makes a difference in light of this old covenant and new covenant contrasting with one another. So verse number one, or, or uh, sorry, point number one, verse number one through verse number five, we want to look at a good picture. Verse number six through verse number 10, a big problem. Verse number 11 and 12, a better high priest. And then verse number 13 and 14, a purged conscience. And I couldn't completely alliterate, but I tried. Verse number one through verse number five, we've got this good picture. And what the author actually does here, and he even says, I don't have time to go into all this as much as I would like to, and I don't want to speak to all these things particularly, even though he probably could have. He lists specific aspects of this first tabernacle. 
He lists a tent, a lampstand, a table, showbread, an ark, a rod, manna, the covenant of the law. The cherubims on the covenant are on the ark. So he goes through all this list of things. And we could, we could spend time, we could probably even spend days going through how Christ is a better tent because he came to dwell with us, how he is the light of the world, how he is the table that is set before us in the presence of our enemies, how he is the bread of life, how he is the true ark, he is the true mercy seat, he is the true leader, he has the rod of Aaron, how he brings us again the bread of life in the manna, how he is overlaid and he is there standing for us before God. We could go through all that, but there's no point in speaking all this detail because that's missing the point of the text. So what is the point of the text? The point is that all of these things were good, number one. And there's a reason that all these things were here. They were all here because they gave those who were in this culture previous to the New Covenant... It gave them glimpses of Christ. And the author is pointing and referencing back to those things because he's wanting them to understand that these things had a purpose. We're not just throwing them to the curb. We're not going to take them all out and put them in the dumpster because we don't need them anymore. He said these served a purpose. They were good things. They were a good picture. They were good things and they had good uses. And even within all this, we have to be careful not to be what C.S. Lewis called a chronological snob. These things were shadows of Christ, and they have been done away with in that Christ has been made better. But they were still to appreciate these things because it pointed them to Christ. They brought them to Christ. Just to be completely honest with you, one of the problems that my generation has, and honestly probably one of the problems that we all have if we're not careful, is we have a habit of trying to chunk everything that was previously in our life. We, uh, we may find out that Christ is better in a specific kind of way and that we don't necessarily need all this legalism that we would have had before. And so we're just ready to throw it all to the curb and say, this is trash, get away from me, without understanding that some of those things probably affected us in bringing us to Christ. There are ways that we can look at this, whether it's through switch, uh, somebody who is switching their translation because they say, well, this translation is, is archaic. And I'm not against somebody switching their translation but we're not trashing the one that we had before because it's probably the one that pointed us to Christ. We're not throwing away those who came before us who were wrong about some things because they're the ones that probably were the bulwarks that stood before us to keep things from happening that could have happened. And hopefully I'm making sense of what I'm saying. I'm trying not to be too specific with things, but hopefully you're kind of picking up what I'm putting down when I say we don't have to trash everything. Just because there were those who came before us and just because there were things that we saw before that we have changed our mind and changed our direction on doesn't mean that all that came before was garbage because God used those things to bring us to himself. Even as we've been looking at things on Wednesday night, even things in our past 
that we have nothing to do with anymore. We can be grateful in a sense for those things because those things are part of what brought us to Christ. They're not our identity, but we can take those things and say, this is who I am. This is where I came from. We can be grateful for those things. There's actually a, a little, I don't know if you I wouldn't even call it a movement because it's not that big, but there's a group of guys that I know that that's one of the things that they strive to do at least once a month is to get together and say, what is something that you don't do anymore that you are can find something good in that pointed you to Christ, that gave you something that you wouldn't have had otherwise? Again, I'm not going to belabor that, but that's in a sense what the author is doing here by pointing out all these things. He's saying these were good things. They were good pictures, and they had good uses. So we're not just throwing them to the side because they still point us to Christ. We can still look at these things, and we can see these glimpses of Christ in these, in these pieces of furniture and in this tabernacle. But the reason that it's not belabored is because we have Christ now. Christ is better than those things, and those things point us to him, but we don't have to dwell on those things. We don't have to get upset when those things or those traditions are taken away from us because we have Christ who is better. And that's honestly, that's the author's intent here. He understands that these group of people are anxious about their, their traditions and their way of life and everything that they've ever known being taken away, and he's striving to say to them, these were good things but they have served their purpose. You don't have to hold on to them anymore because you've got something better. So we see these good pictures, verse number one through verse number five. But in verse number six, the author brings up a big problem. The big problem, verse number six especially, is that these things, this system offered limited access. Verse number six, he writes, Now when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. The access was limited to the priests. There was, there was no full access. As a matter of fact, if you were unclean, or even if you were a Gentile, you were restricted even from certain parts of the tabernacle. You had to be of Jewish descent and be considered clean to even get into parts of the tabernacle. But even with that, the access was limited to the holy portion of the tabernacle to just the priests. Not only was the access limited, and some of this is an echo from last week, but the power was limited. Verse number 7, verse number 8. But... Into the second went the high priest alone. So even all the priests couldn't go into the second part of the temple. So the access was limited even further to just the priest, to the high priest. But as we can kind of continue down through this, he says that he went in once a year. And he went in not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. 
The word that is used here for the errors of the people, and if you go back and you look throughout Deuteronomy, even some into the book of Leviticus, you'll see that these errors that this was made, this blood was offered for the people, was errors that were done in ignorance. There were other sacrifices that were made for sins that were committed willingly, but these sins specifically were, this sacrifice specifically was made for sins that were done in ignorance. Verse number eight, the Holy Spirit, this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was now standing. The author is saying that that's the reason that all this was like this. The reason that the system was set like this is because it was the first. He said the reason that the holiest of all was not yet made manifest to everyone, the veil is not yet rent, is because the first tabernacle was still standing. The fullness of time had not come. So it was limited in its power, and it was limited in its access. But the other really big problem we see in verse number 9, the really big problem and really the crux of this section of Scripture is that this system left the consciences of the people guilty. Verse number nine, which was the figure for the time then present to right then in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices, and catch this, that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. The author here is basically explaining the biggest problem with all this wasn't necessarily just the limited access and it wasn't just the limited power, but it was that the conscience was never made clean. The conscience was never made pure. It couldn't do anything with the guilty conscience. It couldn't take it away. It would just abrogate it. It would push it off for a little bit, and then the guilt would come back. And then it would push it off a little bit, and then the guilt would come back. And then it would push it off a little bit, and then the guilt would come back. Again and again and again, throughout the Old Testament, that was their problem. They had a guilty conscience. And what they would even do at certain points in time is they would go try out other gods that they thought maybe they could get rid of their guilty conscience. And it didn't work. It made things worse. But they couldn't get rid of this guilty conscience that they had. This system, it would abrogate it, not just abrogate it, it would actually intensify it. And we'll get into that as we continue down through here. But the word conscience itself, just so we understand, it means a self-knowledge. It means what we know about ourselves. The Bible speaks a lot about the conscience. It says that a conscience can even be seared to where your self-knowledge becomes diluted. Where you look at yourself and you see yourself as not that bad because your conscience has been seared. Verse number 10, as we kind of continue down through this section, says, Which stood only in meats and drinks and divers washings and cardinal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation. And that wasn't talking about 1517. But what this process did... It basically was a cleansing that was done outwardly. 
So it would get rid of some of the outward sins, but the problem was that the priests and even the people of Israel knew that their, their, their sins were still there. They hadn't been done away with. It had been atoned for, it had been set aside for another year, but it had not been done away with. And just like was said in verse number 8, about how this was the purpose Throughout the New Testament, we see that this was the continued purpose of the law. What does Paul say in Galatians 3, chapter number 20, sorry, verse number 24? He says, the law was a schoolmaster, a tutor. It was a teacher. The law was there, what? To bring us to the knowledge of salvation. Paul says even in Romans chapter number 5, what was alluded to tonight, that the law was there to bring us to Christ. All of this, all what was done, it was there. Its use, its purpose was to intensify this guilty conscience. And we even see Jesus using the law in this way throughout his earthly ministry. When rich young rulers would come and say, what can I do to be saved? What can I do to have eternal life? He said, well, have you kept the law? They said, yes, I've done that perfectly. And then he tells them what to do. And the guy goes away sorrowful because that guilty conscience sprung up. He had done things to assuage the guilty conscience. But whenever Jesus brought up what it was that was actually the true source of that sinfulness, the guilt came back. What does he do with the Samaritan woman? Go tell your husband. I don't have a husband. Well, you're right. You don't. You had four husbands, and the one you're living with now isn't your husband at all. So he, he does what needs to be done with the law in order to point out the need for a better system. And that's ultimately what this old covenant did. Over and over and over, year in and year out, it pointed out the need for something better. And we've covered this. We understand this from the book of Romans. That is what we needed. We needed something better. The Jewish people that he's speaking to, they needed something better. He says throughout, even throughout chapter number eight, he said if the first would have been enough, then we wouldn't have needed a second. But we needed a second because the first one was enough because it couldn't get rid of your guilty conscience. The law had the purpose. It was a good purpose, but it couldn't do what needed to be done. It couldn't clean up the conscience. And ultimately, this is our problem. For whatever reason, we are dead set on doing our best to stay in this system even after we say that we've trusted Christ. We, we get that effect of the second or the third use of the law onto our conscience on what, what we're doing wrong, how our works are not good. And what do we do? We try and find a system to get rid of our guilty conscience. We try and do things to get rid of the guilt that is coming up in our life. We're dead set on doing that. We think, well, I missed church for three weeks because I was out sick. So I probably should sign up to volunteer somewhere so that I can make up for the three weeks that I missed. Is that not what we do? We go out and we, we 
lust after someone who's walking down the side of the road. And then we think, well, I better help this person cross the street to make up for me looking at that person walking down the road. We lie to someone. And we don't even tell them that we lied, but we'll do something for them on the back end to make up for what we had just done in that lie. And maybe I'm the only bad one here. Maybe I'm the only one that does these kinds of things. But that's the way that we're natured. Even those who say that we trust Christ, we try and do things to make up for this conscience problem. If that wasn't the case, there wouldn't be a conscience fund in the treasury. We wouldn't think that we had to make up for using a stamp twice. That's not what we would do. The law in its use is doing good things. But what we do is we misuse the law and instead of using the law to do its purpose and point us to the sufficient work of Christ, we turn it back in upon ourselves and try and fix ourselves by what the law says. We're bent on doing this. Even if you, you think about the people that you know, the people that you grew up around, the people that you've been involved with in church who are now out of church, 95% of the time, what was their problem? I can't do this. Look at these people. They say that this is the way to do it, and they're not even doing it, so forget this. I don't want what these people have because they say that they're doing good here, and then when I get with their, them and their family, they treat their family like garbage. I don't want that. Or they say that I ought to live like this, and then when I don't, they come down on me with condemnation. We covered that in Romans chapter 14. We know how to fix that problem. But this misuse of the law, it accounts for most of the problems that we have. Because we, like these Jewish people, are doing our best to stay in this this old covenant system. To try and fix our consciences ourselves. But the good news is, We don't have to because we have a better high priest. Verse 11 and 12, but Christ being being come an high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but his own blood has entered in once. Not year after year after year after year. Not every time that we see our guilty conscience. Not every time we do something wrong. But he's entered in once into the holy place. Having obtained eternal redemption for us all. The author could not be more explicit in explaining to these people the solution to their problem. He says, you have a better high priest. You had limited access before. You've got a better high priest with unlimited access. You know why his his access is unlimited? It's right there in verse number 12. The problem before was that these men would go into the holy place, verse number 7, without blood. 
not without blood. They had to take the blood of the bulls and the goats with them. But verse number 12, but by his own blood, he entered into the holy place. The reason that he has unlimited access is because he has an unlimited power in his blood. Well, he could have rightfully sung tonight, there is power in the blood. Not only does this unlimited access, but he had unlimited power in this powerful blood. This unlimited access, it says that he once for all, he went in one time. There was no need to go again and again and again. Do you know what happens with an animal's blood when it sits in the sun for a few days? It dries and cakes and it turns into nastiness and then it goes away. What the author is saying is that this blood was different. It doesn't go away. It doesn't dry. It doesn't cake. It doesn't lose its efficiency. It is an unlimited, once for all, not partial, not temporal, blood of our Savior. He goes on to say that this blood is not just unlimited in its supply and in its power, but it has obtained eternal redemption for us. It didn't just obtain eternal redemption for the heck of it. It obtained eternal redemption for a purpose, and that was for us. This unlimited supply gives unlimited access and has unlimited power for our seemingly unlimited sin and our seemingly unlimited guilty conscience. And that brings us to the point of what the author was saying here. Verse number 13 and 14, this purged conscience. Verse 13, For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works. He said if this outward blood was there to purify outwardly, how much more will this spiritual blood purify you spiritually? I don't know if you're following what the author is saying here, But in the text, we can see his line of thought. He says you have a temporal, limited supply of animal blood for outward purifying. But you have an eternal, unlimited supply for inward purifying. How much more is this inward purifying going to fix your problem? This purged conscience gives us the ability to finally be free. And that was the promise of the new covenant. And that while our consciences may continue to tell us what we should think about ourselves, the blood of Christ eternally stands to tell us what God thinks about us now. 
We don't have to look in at ourselves to figure out who we are. We are looking into the throne room to where Christ is making intercession for us to find out what God says about us because he did it eternally for us. And this all points us to the last part of this verse. He said, you've been purged in your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So now it's not just the priests. It's not just the high priest. But he's saying all of you can now have a clean conscience that the high priest didn't even have. You've got something that he didn't have because your high priest is better than him. R.C. Sproul said that the essence of all of theology is grace. And the essence of all service is gratitude. What he was saying is that when we look at things, we don't look at the service that we do for God. We don't look at the good works, just like the confession says. We're not looking at those things through the light of a list of something that we have to do. We're looking at these things in gratitude for what has been done for us. We're not looking in at ourselves. We're looking out to Christ and we're doing the work for that motivation. All of our theology, everything that we look at doctrine-wise should point us back to Christ. And the only, the only, the only reason that we should ever be looking to service is in gratitude. Never for any other reason. If we ever look at Christian service in any other light than in gratitude, we have completely missed the point. We have skewed the new covenant and we have basically tread over the blood of Christ. We've said, this is not good enough. I'm going to make up for my own guilty conscience. This brings us complete assurance. And I could not have planned what the confession said tonight any better if I would have tried. What did it say? Everything that we do that's good, whether it's weak and failing or not, it is accepted. Why? Because of Christ. Here in the text, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God. Anything that you do in your life is not going to outrun the eternal spirit of God. That's in essence what the confession said. It says that everything that is done is done through the filter of the work of Christ and by the powering of the spirit. And the Spirit's eternal. So anything that we do is not going to be done outside of the work of the Spirit. Again, hopefully you're following the text with me tonight. Hopefully you're seeing what the author is trying to convey. Every aspect in our work, in our life, in our service, it's all been accepted before God. What does Romans say? It works together for the good, right? What's the good? We continue through that text. The good is that we are glorified. God is using everything that we do for good to bring us to glorification. I'm taking Greek right now. And just to flex those Greek muscles, I'm going to tell you what everything means. It means everything. Everything that you do 
because it is being filtered through the blood of Christ, is accepted before God. And he's using it for his purpose. Even what we do this bad, he's using for his purpose. Now, is there consequences to what we do this bad? If I go play in the road, there's going to be bad consequences of that because it was a stupid decision. But guess what? God's not going to say, well, he screwed up. Y'all can have his funeral. I ain't messing with that. Uh What's going to happen is he's going to use that mistake to bring somebody else to Christ. If we read through the Old Testament, we see it again and again and again and again. And I know we've made reference to this, but Elimelech, he goes off to Moab. What happens? God didn't just say, forget Elimelech, forget his family. I'm done with all of you. Not to spoil the story. If you haven't read it, spoiler alert, Ruth comes back with him. Ruth has a son. He has a son. David is born. Christ comes. Good came out of the bad. Because that's what God does. No other religion gives you a God that brings good things from bad things. But we have that because we have a good thing in Christ. And everything is filtered through that good thing in Him. What the author is, is alluding to, and we'll conclude this section of Scripture. In the book of Isaiah, chapter number 6, we, there's a specific section of that verse that we, we all know and we all love to hear and we all love to use. That's, here my Lord, send me. But if you go previous to that, what happens is Isaiah is taken up, given a vision of God. He sees the train fill the temple. He says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell with people with unclean lips. He says, I'm wrong. All the people I'm around are wrong. And the angel does what? He brings a coal. He places the coal upon the lips of Isaiah. And he says, you're clean now. If you know anything about the sacrificial system, specifically think about Samson. Why couldn't he touch dead animals? It would make him unclean. The author of Hebrews will allude to this again and again and again. When you touch something unclean, you become unclean. That's why the Pharisees were so upset that the disciples weren't washing their hands. Because they said, if you touch something unclean, you put something unclean in you, you become unclean. If you are unclean and you touch something holy, the holy thing becomes unclean and it has to be repurified. What has been done to our conscience is the same thing that was done to Isaiah's conscience. Where our bad conscience, everything that it touches, it makes it unclean, it makes it bad, it makes it, makes it worse. God has taken his holiness and touched us with his holiness and made us clean. Amen. He has touched our conscience with his blood and he's purified our conscience. That old covenant could not do that. All that it could do is say, stay away from the dead because it will make you unclean. The new covenant says, come here. Let me touch you. I will make you clean. And that solves our problem. It solves our guilty conscience. It's the point of the text here. The point that the author is making is that we have a better covenant. We have a better high priest. We have a better system because every other way could not fix our guilty conscience. 
That's what we were left with. We were left with a guilty conscience. We couldn't fix it. We may would act tough, and then we'd go home and cry ourselves to sleep because we couldn't get rid of the guilty conscience. But the new covenant does that. It's not merit-based because Christ was enough. It's not works-based because Christ's work was enough. It's not temporary because Christ's work is eternal. It doesn't lack power because there's no lack of power in the blood of Christ. If we miss everything else in the text, let's not miss the power of this new covenant is the power to clean a guilty conscience. We don't have to leave here tonight with a guilty conscience. We don't have to go home and lay down and not be able to sleep because of a guilty conscience. We don't have to wonder about our standing before God because we know what we have done. We've been given a better high priest who once for all has obtained an eternal redemption for us. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for the opportunity to be in